This is Flita with Women Ministering, a place for women who are changing the world by sharing God's love. And I today am talking about why your story matters, and I'm going to give you my testimony. Um, everybody has a life story. Christians usually refer to it as a testimony because it's sort of a before and after Jesus story. Um, but have you ever wondered if your story mattered? I know a lot of times we tend to feel insignificant and like, oh, nobody cares about my life or my story. It's not going to make any difference. And that isn't true, but it's what we think. Um, sometimes Christians who grew up in church feel like their testimony is just so boring that nobody's going to want to hear it because they never did anything wrong. And yet, really, <laughs> it's just the opposite of that. It is so inspiring to hear that there are people who have testimonies like that, um, especially for those of us who might not. Stories are hugely important in our life. Um, for most of history, stories were the only way to preserve heritage and history itself. The Old Testament is the story of the Jewish nation. It's a series of stories that we read, and that way we know about history, we know about things that happened, we know about people. Um, stories play an important part in our life. Um, we turn on the television and listen to stories. We hear podcasts where we hear stories. They are all around us, and they are tremendously important. They teach us about life and about right and wrong, about how to live, what to do, what not to do, social norms, all of that. And so stories are very, very important. And our testimonies are the best way to share why we're Christians. Um, they also help other people to know and understand us. So there's no such thing as a boring life story or testimony. Every story is important because you're important. Stories tell us that. Um, and you may not think that you're important, but you are. To God, you are tremendously important. And as a result, your story matters. So I am going to give you my testimony. Um, it's going to be an overview, but... Um, this is my testimony. You know me as Fleeta Benny. I was born in a little town in Idaho as Fleeta Gay Jim, J-I-M. Yeah, pretty strange name, and I spent my whole life spelling my first name. <laughs> so it was an odd name. Um, I'm an only child. My parents loved me, um, each in their own way. My father adored me and never disciplined me one time in his life. My mother was a whole different story and I'll explain a little bit more about that later. But as far as I know, as a child, my life was pretty normal. When I was about five, we moved from Idaho to California. We moved to Long Beach and we lived in several different places and that also is the story of my life. I've lived in over 40 different homes in my lifetime. So yes, there's been a lot of moving going on. But the place I remember most in Long Beach was an old hotel on Ocean Boulevard. 
and we lived uh, right above the beach near some old wooden stairs going down to the beach and I spent hours on the beach alone. I even spent time talking with the bums who lived under the stairs which I suppose was dangerous but at that time it didn't seem to be. When you're an only child you end up spending a lot of time alone and so for me I remember loneliness very distinctly. Um, I also remember fear from as far back as my mind can reach. And I never really understood why until I was an adult. Um, My mom, who took very good care of me, I learned in later life, was and is a narcissist. And she expected me to be what she wanted me to be. Um, because that's what a narcissist wants. They want to control everyone and everything around them. And so she wanted me to be perfect and to do everything exactly as she told me to. And so she was a very harsh and cruel taskmaster, physically cruel. Um, But yet at the same time, I knew that she loved me. Um, But the problem is, I had to be perfect. And that equals fear, because how do you measure perfect when you're a child who can't be perfect? You're a kid. But I was afraid, constantly afraid. I was afraid of going to places where I didn't know anybody. Um, The first day of school always just scared me spitless. I was afraid of doing something wrong all the time. I was afraid of everything. Um, we moved to Belmont Shore near Long Beach when I was ele- and then when I was 11, my parents separated. My dad had gotten a job in Santa Barbara and he left and my mom and I didn't. And there was no explanation. She just told me he moved away. That was all I knew. And so the other thing I didn't know was that she had become an alcoholic. Um, She didn't let me see or communicate with him. And then she also went to work full-time because she had to. And that meant that the loneliness was greatly increased. She started dating even though she wasn't divorced. um, And my dad would not give her a divorce and she didn't have any money. And so the stream of men through my mom's life began to flow at that point. And we ended up moving to Reno so that she could get an easy divorce, a cheap divorce there. And she met a man and married him, and he sexually abused me. And I told her about it, but she didn't believe me. And in looking back, um, I think that she was probably drunk when I told her, but I didn't know that at the time. But what that did for me was make me shut down emotionally. And I thought that nobody cared. Um what happened to me, which then reinforced the feeling of being completely worthless. And so my life was on a downhill spiral. And I had friends, but no family around me at all. From the time we left Idaho until I ended up back here, when we were in California, I was around one uncle and a great-great-great-aunt and uncle. When we moved to Reno, I wasn't around anybody. There was no family there, none. And so I did not grow up around family. So I didn't even have family to turn to. 
Um, I started drinking and doing all the things that I hated in my mother. I was suicidal, depressed, confused, afraid, and lonely, and I didn't know of anybody I could turn to. And as a child, my family had gone to church, and so I had a really strong belief in God, but I didn't know anything about Jesus. I had no idea what that was all about. Um, So I would pray and I would beg God to please come and get me out of this hell, make it end. But then when he didn't, I'd get mad and scream bad things at him. And then I'd get scared that he was going to strike me with lightning. So then I would cry and beg for forgiveness. And I didn't realize that he was with me the whole time. I just had no way to know that. I decided one day to go visit a Lutheran church there in Reno because that's what we had attended in California. So I got up, got dressed one Sunday morning, and I walked into the church, sat down, listened, got up, left, and not one person even said hello to me. So I thought, well, okay, that pretty much clinches it. There is no hope. There is nobody that cares about me at all. Um, my, as I said, my friends were all pretty much in the same situation I was in with broken homes and alcoholic parents. They were doing the same thing I was doing. And so it was a very lonely situation. Psalm 25, 15 through 16 says, Rescue me, Lord, for you're my only hero. Sorrow, s- sorrows fill my heart as I feel helpless, mistreated. I'm all alone and in misery. Come closer to me now, Lord, for I need your mercy. So needless to say, my self-esteem was zero. Um, My mother had literally told me one day that she wished that I was a doll, that she could dress up and fix my hair and sit me on the couch, and I would just sit there and look pretty and perfect and never cause any trouble at all. Well, my interpretation of that as a teenager was that she didn't want me. She wanted a doll, but me, Fleeta, she didn't want me. She didn't care about me. Now, somewhere in the midst of that, I still managed to have a strong will, and I was pretty rebellious. Um, I'd been forced to be independent, but I hated myself. And I wanted to die, and thankfully I never succeeded at any of my attempts. Um, I, I just wanted somebody to see me, somebody to care. And I was sure that I wouldn't live past 20. Um, I had no future plans, and I didn't have anybody around me who was encouraging me to have any. Uh, one day, a friend and I had been drinking, and we decided to run away, which we did. And I won't go into the details of it, um, but we hitchhiked from Reno to Sacramento to San Francisco and finally to L.A. over a a period of about two weeks. When we arrived in L.A., we were picked up for curfew violation, and I spent one night in jail, and then the next morning was taken to a juvenile detention facility. And the wonderful thing was that the person who came to get me was my dad. And we were reunited, and it was wonderful. My dad and I always got along really well, um, probably because he adored me and treated me like a princess. And I stayed with him for a couple of months, maybe three months. 
and it was a wonderful time. I got to go to work with him, and he got me a puppy, and I had a wonderful time, but the prospect of going back to school was coming, and the fear was there. I was afraid to start at some place new where I didn't know anyone, and so I asked to go back and be with my mother. That lasted for about two months, and I called my dad to ask him to come back, if I could come back, and um, I found out that he was in the process of moving back to Idaho. So he came through Reno, and he picked me up, and my life took a great turn for the better. I was 14, almost 15. And life in Idaho was very different. Um, I was still doing all the things I had done, the things I shouldn't do, but only because I didn't know what else to do. That was all I knew. I hadn't had an example of a normal family at all. And so I didn't know how to be with family. I didn't want to be that way anymore, but I was trying to figure out how to change. And we lived with my aunt and uncle and my cousins. And gosh, that was a huge change to be around family. Um, and so little by little, I began to change. This was all a new experience for me. Near the end of my junior year in high school, I went to a dance. Um, and some guy that I didn't know came up and asked me to dance with him, and that was fine. We weren't going anywhere. We were just dancing. And I didn't know him. I'd never seen him at school. And we talked, and he asked me to go out the next day, and I said yes. We were never apart again, except for Army-related absences until 2015. He was my young love and the love for most of my life. Um, he had already enlisted in the Army when we met, but we spent the last few weeks of school together every second that we could. And he took me to meet his family, and he had a real, normal family. They lived in a house. He had brothers and a sister. They had animals. They had horses and cows and dogs and cats and all the things I had ever dreamed of. I had This was the family I had longed for as a child and they took me in like I was one of them um, hadn't really even known them that long they took me with them to go to Louisiana when Dawn graduated from boot camp and then to Missouri to meet relatives and all that and it was wonderful and I had stopped doing all the other things that I shouldn't do at that point um, we got married when we were 16 and 17 and I couldn't drive at that time so I rode with another lady whose husband was stationed in Alabama. Um, I got there that evening, spent the night by myself in an apartment that Don had rented, got married the next day, and one month later he received orders for Korea, which was a hard duty station and I couldn't go. I had also gotten pregnant in the very first month, so I went home and I lived with his parents. Um, he came home for the birth of our first son and then had to go back when our son was three days old. That was July of 1967. And he came home in December. In January, we headed to Colorado Springs for three months, then to Killeen, Texas for three months, and then he headed to Vietnam for a year. And out of our first three years of marriage, we were only together for nine months. 
While he was gone, I lived with his parents for a little while, and then I moved into a little house down the street and went to work. I had learned how to drive. And he came home in May of 1969. We had both changed, but definitely not in the same ways. My big change was that I received Christ as my Savior while he was gone. One night after my son was asleep, I had turned on the television and there was a Billy Graham crusade. So I watched it and I was still struggling. I had brought all my baggage into this marriage and I was struggling with all the same demons that I had struggled with for my whole life. Um, I looked okay on the outside, but I wasn't on the inside. And when that invitation came to accept Jesus as your Savior and they started playing that song, Just As I Am, I started crying and I knelt down by the couch by myself and I repeated the sinner's prayer. It was on for two more nights, so both nights, all three nights, I did the same thing. I cried, knelt down, and prayed that prayer because I had no idea if you only had to do it once. <laughs> I didn't know if it took the first time. Um, I realized, had realized that my neighbor was a Christian, and so I finally went and talked to her about what had happened, and she invited me to go to church with her, which I did, and I have been in one from then until now. The prayer worked. <laughs> and I had always known God was real, but I finally found his son, and I found his grace and mercy and forgiveness. And it took a lot of years for a complete healing in my life. Um, my self-esteem was still low, but it gradually changed. I didn't tell anyone about my sexual abuse until I was 25, and I finally told my husband and began to find healing in that area. And a lot of my healing came through forgiveness because as a child and a teenager and even as an adult, I hated my mother. I despised her. Um, but I learned about forgiveness. I genuinely forgave her. And uh, today, I love my mother. We don't have a relationship. We did have for a few years, but my mother, being a narcissist, began to um, really very heavily try to control and manipulate me. I started setting boundaries, and if you know anything about narcissists, once they learn that they can't use you or manipulate you, they're done with you. And so she's done with me, but that's okay. I still love her and will take care of her when she needs it, but um, forgiveness was a huge part of my healing. Um, for part of the time after Dawn got home from Vietnam, our, our relationship started to go downhill. We loved each other deeply, but he had been permanently changed by the war in ways that neither of us knew. He himself didn't realize how he had changed. And we were struggling. He was drinking. He would come to church with me, but he'd slide down and go to sleep with his feet on the back of the pew in front of him. And he was a good man, but he was just lost. And uh, one day we were home. It was evening and um, we were watching television and Don was smoking a cigarette and drinking a beer like he normally did. And the pastor knocked on the door, so in he came and sat down and he really didn't stay that long. Don was polite, but he didn't have much to say to him. And the pastor got ready to leave, literally had his hand on the doorknob 
when he stopped and turned around and looked at Don and said, Don, I believe that you need to pray and accept Jesus as your Savior tonight. And I'm positive that I stopped breathing because I thought, oh no, he is going to throw this man out of our house. And I looked over toward Don, and to my total shock, he began crying. He knelt down by the couch on the floor next to the pastor, said a sinner's prayer, and the pastor left. (laughs) And everything didn't magically change. Um, He started staying awake through church, and he started cutting back on his drinking, and little by little, he finally quit. Um, We moved, went to another church. More changes took place in our life, and I ended up being baptized in the Holy Spirit. And when I told him about it, he almost left me because he thought either I was demon-possessed or I had lost my mind. But what he told me later was that the reason he didn't was because he would come home from work and look at me, and he saw such joy and peace in me that to him it literally looked like I was floating on air. And I didn't know that, but that was what he saw, and he ended up being baptized in the Spirit, and that really turned our world upside down. Um, We had three sons by then. Don was working at an excellent job. I was a stay-at-home mom, and we had lots of wonderful Christian friends and a lot of good things happening in our lives. But one of the things that began to happen is that we felt a calling to full-time ministry. We moved to another city with his job um, and eventually started a church with another couple and then Don went into full-time ministry. Sometime later, uh, the church split over things that I'm not going to go into, but what ended up happening was that we ended up jobless with five kids. We had our three sons and two foster daughters. And I'm telling you this so that you know that I understand what it's like to have bills, to have children, um, to have no job, no food, and a broken life. For Dawn and I, our entire vision and everything we thought God had said to us had been smashed. It was gone. And we were broken trying to figure out, you know, we thought we were doing God's will, and then this happened. And we just didn't understand. We just could not figure it out. And so we were really struggling. And that was just the beginning of learning that being in God's will does not mean that life is smooth and easy and wonderful. Um, It's just the opposite. Uh, We moved back to Boise, Idaho. Don got a job. We were in church and serving and good things happening. God restored everything to us, including a home and all of that. And we ended up on staff at a large church in our area, and we were there for quite a few years. And then we moved to a nearby small town and started another church. And that did well, but after a few years, it started declining. And we just felt that it was time for us to quit, and so we did. Don had realized, he had gone through a process of healing too. At one point, he finally realized that he had a terrible problem with anger as a result of Vietnam. Um, He was not physically violent, but he had a raging, uncontrollable temper. And his sons finally had uh, called kind of a family meeting, and it was dealt with, and 
there was great healing for both of them. And he also finally got healing for PTSD. Um, but what happened when the church shut down, the second one, was very, very difficult for him. And he was quite depressed. And he um, became a realtor, and I did too. And I also had started an outreach for victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. Um, I worked in two counties, ran the center, worked for a prosecutor, and helped with the church. So I had three jobs. And by 2014, I was emotionally exhausted, and I had to quit all my jobs. And I nearly had a breakdown. But I came through. God helped me, and I found restoration. And in the mean meantime, Don's health was rapidly declining. He had Parkinson's, and then he had something else that was never diagnosed. Um, we believe we know what it was, but there's no way to know for sure. But he was in constant pain. He was miserable. He would talk to me and other close friends about the fact that he just wanted to go home. He, the constant pain was just overwhelming for him. And he was unhappy and depressed, and there was nothing I could do about it. We had begun riding motorcycles in 2010, and I rode mine and he rode his. And actually, one of the things that got me through the near breakdown was the motorcycle, because I could come home, get on it, and ride away from everything but ride into God and peace and prayer. And so we rode quite a bit. We had a new neighbor who he and his wife rode motorcycles, and we got to be good friends. And on July 26, 2015, we were on a ride with them, and Don was killed instantly in an accident that was his fault. He had lost control of his motorcycle, crossed the center line, and, and hit another vehicle. I was there, I was not involved in the motorcycle accident, but I was there and with him. Um, and if I hadn't been, I would have died too. But that was the most horrible and painful time I have ever endured in my lifetime. Nothing compares to the pain of losing half of yourself. But all that I had been through in the past gave me the strength and the faith I needed to get through this. I had learned to have faith in the hard times because I knew that there was light around the corner and all those years of faith bore fruit. 11 months later, I was diagnosed with stage three, um, stage two to three colorectal cancer and started treatment. And after um, God working in my life and lots of chemo and surgery, I'm now cancer-free, and I'm living a life I would never have dreamed of. I remarried, and I live on a beautiful farm with a kind and just awesome husband. And my faith is stronger than ever, and so is my peace and joy. But it did not come easily. It didn't come without pain. It came through pain. And I understand that now. Um, and I can fully embrace that, that we have to go through painful times because pain can be the very best teacher if we allow it to be. And while this is a lot of facts about my life and really not so much about my spiritual life, I hope that you see through this the depth of God in my life. And I'm nobody special. 
I'm not famous or rich. I'm just a plain, simple woman who hung on to her faith through the worst and the best of times in her life. I found the beauty in the valley of the shadow of death, and I learned to believe and trust fully in what I can't see. Romans 12, 9 through 10 says, Let the inner movement of your heart always be to love one another and never play the role of an actor wearing a mask. Despise evil, embrace everything that is good and virtuous. Be devoted tenderly to loving your fellow believers as members of one family. Try to outdo yourselves in respect and honor of one another. I wanted you to hear my story so that when you read what I am writing or when you hear me on a podcast, you would know that my words come from experience and compassion that I've learned through pain. And I wanted you to know why I'm always so excited about the inspired to flourish saying that I have. It's real. My feelings are genuine. I earned the right to say these things because I believe them and I know the truth of finding the light in the darkest place and holding on to a thread of hope, knowing that God is coming through. And my words aren't just words, they are my heart, and I pray that you know that. I understand loneliness, fear, rejection, loss, and more. I also recognize that there are other people who have gone through far worse things than I have, and I don't pretend to know everything. I just know my life, and I know what God's done in me. Um, And so when I write to you about, or I talk to you about achieving your dreams or changing the world or anything else the foundation of my words is my story in Jesus and that's your foundation too I learned that life isn't about what I don't have it's about what I do have and what I do have is glorious because I have Jesus and it's even better because I choose to see it that way I'm not living in denial of facts. I'm just living living in the acknowledgement of God's love and grace and the fullness of God that dwells inside of me, and that can't be taken away. I have a reason for the hope that's in me, and I know how to give a reason for the hope that's in me, and that reason is my relationship with Jesus and my own life story and how those are entwined together. And if I made it, you can too. You and I may be different, but Jesus isn't. He's always the same. His grace is always free. And his love is always pure, holy, and extravagant. Um, 1 Peter 3.15 in the Passion Translation says, But give reverent honor in your hearts to the anointed one and treat him as the holy master of your lives. And if anyone asks about the hope living within you, always be ready to explain your faith. There's a lot more detail to my life, but I hope this overview helps you know me better and understand the heart that I have to see you flourish in every area of your life, especially with Jesus. Um, My story is all about him and so is yours and I thank you please go to women ministering there's all kinds of resources and encouragement and inspiration to flourish there for you and I thank you and God bless you